The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills sing for joy together. Before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. This is the word of the Lord. Lord God, uh, we thank you again for the privilege of coming before you as your people. Um, Father, a people who are bound together um, by your promised King, um, that we can look at him and feel that immeasurable joy, Lord. Um, Father, thank you for these reminders in this Advent season that... Father, there's so much better to come, and we look forward for the coming of a second king, Lord, and his second coming here when he makes all things right. Um, Lord, we pray for John as he opens the word for us this morning, and pray that you give him wisdom um, as he speaks, and give us all ears that can hear what you need to say to us this morning. Amen. Thanks, Richard. Okay. Um, if you have your Bible and you haven't yet, go ahead and open to Psalm 98. Uh, we're really looking at four different psalms through these four weeks of Advent. Each of the psalms reflect those traditional themes of Advent, of hope, uh, peace, joy, love. But really, ultimately, they're showing us a facet of the, the person who brings us those things, uh, which is the King of Kings, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, last week, we started by looking at Psalm 2. and. Uh, you may have thought that was an interesting psalm to begin with, um, because it's a psalm that speaks quite loudly about the wrath of God, right? There's a king that is coming who will shatter his enemies. Happy Christmas, everyone. Um, listen, that's an, that's an eye-opening uh, and, and even kind of shocking message, but it's a really important one uh, for everyone to hear and respond to. Um, it, it really had four movements in that song. Uh, we, basically got, we basically got the, the nature of sin, um, that, that each and every one of us is born with this desire for self-sovereignty, this desire for freedom from God. Um, and, and so out of that sinful rebellion, the nations rage, and the, we, we plot in vain, and we set ourselves against God. Um, secondly, we saw that God, in His, His holy, His righteous response to our sin is to not at first wipe us off the face of the earth, although sin might deserve that, uh, but his initial response is to uh, set his king on his holy hill in Zion and point us to that king. Uh, in the third stanza of Psalm 2, we were introduced to that king. Who is he? What does he come to do? Uh, he is God's begotten son. He is God's chosen king. He sits on God's throne. He will gather God's people and he will inherit the ends of the earth. Um, but he also comes as uh, the judge to shatter God's enemies and, and wipe out sin completely, which is, which is either terrible news or it's glorious news. Um, and so the psalm ends uh, with a plea that this be glorious news. It's a plea for the enemies of God to be wise, to be warned, to repent, to take refuge in the king. Right? It gives us a decision to make. 
Um, either submit to his good rule, serve him, rejoice in him, love him, or perish in his wrath. It's really an, an eye-opening psalm, uh, but it's an incredibly merciful and loving psalm. It ends with this merciful offer of hope. Um, what a sobering, uh, yet hopeful psalm that we must all hear and respond to. It's a message of hope for those who are utterly lost and against God in their sin. You see, there, there, there's at least one thing that is certain for this coming king, and that is victory. Uh, the, the king, this, this savior, he's, he's not only a, a descendant from David's line, he's also sent from heaven. He's God's own son. He's God in the flesh, come to wage war against Satan and sin and death, uh, but he does not enter into this battle with the uncertainty of, of, of an outcome. No, his, his victory is certain. Satan knows this. His, his devils know this. When Jesus, the king, arrives, it's not a matter of if he will be, win, but, but when he will win. Pastor Matt Smethers says, the war against Satan's forces will not be short. It will not be easy. It will not be painless, but it will be won. Victory is certain for this king and his people. And so the, the psalm that we're looking at today is a song of victory. It's a joyful celebration in response to the victory that this king brings. You, you see, there, there, there's two sides in every victory, isn't there? In every battle that's, that's won, there's two sides. There's friend and foe, right? There, there are the victors and there are those who are defeated. That, that's how war works. And Psalm 2 showed us that, right? When this king comes, he will either gather those who repent, gather those who take refuge in him, and they will receive peace and everlasting life in his kingdom, or he will shatter his enemies. And Psalm 98 it really focuses just on one of those groups, solely on the victors, solely on those who receive salvation from this king, and it's a psalm of pure joy in response to this victory. Let me pray one more time and we'll take a closer look at this song of joy. And Father, we, uh, we thank you and we praise you that you are a God who sets things right. You're a God who not only hears our, 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 our cries of this is not the way it's meant to be, but you wholeheartedly agree with that. And your solution is to come yourself and fix things. Um, Jesus, may you be big. Lord, would you stir in our hearts in response to what you've done today? Um, Holy Spirit, would you teach us? In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, psalm 98 is a well-known psalm, um, and it's really come to be associated with Christmas. It's actually the background to the first song that we sang today, that, that famous hymn, one of the most famous songs ever written, right, by an Englishman called Isaac Watts in 1719, a song, Joy to the World. Um, that's a great hymn that's obviously become uh, associated with Christmas. It's become this famous Christmas carol um, that we sing worldwide every December, uh, and that's because of the opening line, right? Joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king. And so, yes, on one side, it's, it's really appropriate uh, to, to sing and the, the celebration and the birth of this king, uh, but, but when you sing it, you realize it's much more expansive than that, Right? It doesn't really talk about the nativity or anything like that. It's really looking forward 
to his second advent when Jesus will come and bring to completion what Psalm 92 is anticipating, when he comes to to judge and to rule the world and to undo the wrongs in this place. It celebrates and longs for the first and the second advents of King Jesus. And so we we should sing it year-round. It celebrates all of Jesus' comings. Um, It's nine verses long. Uh, We can group them into three stanzas of three verses each. Um, It has quite a natural flow through those movements of the psalm. Let me just kind of give you a breakdown of them. Uh, Stanza one shows us that God has worked salvation for his people. Um, In the Old Testament, the people of Israel, uh, he's worked their salvation, and that's seen to the ends of the earth. Uh, It's a song that really could be sung by Israel at many points in their journey, in their history. Um, Most famously, the the story of uh, the Exodus Uh, Or very appropriately, when God stirs in the heart of King Cyrus and he brings his people back from exile into the land, over and over again, God is working salvation for his people. That's the first three verses. Notice that word that's repeated in each, each of those three verses, salvation, salvation, salvation. That's the theme of this song. The second stanza, verses four to six, it's this invitation then for all of the peoples of the earth to join Israel in their celebration of the king because God is their rightful king as well. And remember Psalm two, it's really this offer of hope for Gentile nations who who rage and set themselves against God but, but to come and take refuge in the king. And so this is the invitation of uh, those people to sing as well. And then lastly, in verses 7 and 9, uh, the invitation extends uh, not just to the inhabitants of the earth, but to material creation itself. That the earth itself, herself, should join mankind in this jubilant praise of the one true God as they look forward to his rule and reign forever. Um, It's this amazing song that has in mind the first advent of the Savior, the victory that he establishes in his first coming, while also keeping his eye on his second coming, um, when he will come again and put all the wrongs right. He will establish his kingdom forever and ever, this kingdom of peace and righteousness on a renewed earth. Right? There's that, that important dual perspective. We have reason to sing right now, right? Because the king has come, because he has brought us salvation but we're also remembering a day when he will come, and as Richard said, there's, there's so much better ahead. There's so much, the, the full consummation of his victory will be brought to earth. What, what hopeful joy we can live in as members of God's household. So let's just make our way through those three stanzas of Psalm 98. Let's read those first three verses again. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand, his holy arm, have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. There's a lot there, much more than we can cover in one sermon, Um, but just look at that opening line. The the, the psalm begins with a command. It begins with instruction to God's people to sing. Sing to the Lord a new song. 
Um, as, as we'll see, this is responsive singing. This is a, a call to, to worship in, in song to the things that God has done. Um, it's important to, to, to remember worship isn't the only way, uh, singing isn't the only way we worship. Right? We get we stuck in thinking that sometimes, even think of our, our, our gatherings, we begin and we end with worship, two songs at the start, two songs at the end, and in the middle we have other things like scripture readings and prayers and, and a sermon. Um, that's, that is not the Bible's idea of, of worship, right? The Bible teaches us that, that all of life is worship. All of these things are the worshipful response to God, right? Every element of our gathering is worship. Um, singing is one element of worship, but reading the word is worship. Um, exposition of the scripture is worship. Giving is worship. It's all worship. But singing, singing is powerful, isn't it? Um, there, there's a reason we think of singing first as our worshipful response. And, and there's many reasons for that, but, but I think the main reason that singing is our knee-jerk reaction to good news is because we were designed that way. We, by nature, break into song when we experience joy because we were created in God's image, and God is a singer. We don't think of God singing that often, but, but the scriptures portray him as in, in that way. Uh, two of my favorite passages that tell us this is Hebrews chapter, tw- uh, chapter 2, verse 12, uh, that, that says, for both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all one from the Father. He's talking about Christ and the church here. For this reason, he is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing your praise. Isn't that an amazing picture? That, that, uh, this picture of, of Christ himself standing in the midst of the assembly, leading them in worship, singing in their midst, singing with us. Zephaniah 3:17 says, "The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing." Right? Like in one sense, we, we, are, we are fulfilling our image bearer status the most when we are singing loudly with joy because that's what our Father does. Now, that's what our Savior does in the midst of his assembled people. So next time you're at a sporting event and the crowds are singing or you're at a concert and, and the crowds are lifting their hands in song, the reason behind all of that is the image bearer that they, the, 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 the image that they are reflecting, that the source of all of their singing is the God who sings, right? They, they might have a misdirected object in their worship, but we were made to sing. And, and, and saying that, the object or the direction of the song is important. And that's why verse one says, oh, sing to the Lord, right? That this is a call to worship, this is a call to, to praise God, directing our praises to the one who deserves our worship. And we're told to sing to him a new song. What does that mean? Now, a new song, it doesn't necessarily mean a freshly composed song, um, although that's not a bad thing. We, we should be freshly composing songs of worship in response to God, uh, but that's not what new song is referring to here. Instead, this is a call to sing a song as a response to a fresh experience of God's grace. This is singing because of a reason. 
And we, we, we get the reason for the singing in the following lines. Sing to the Lord a new song for or because he has done marvelous things. Right? Because his right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. In, in Exodus 15, you get the song of Moses, which is a new song, not because it was a freshly composed song by Moses, but because they are singing in response to God bringing them out of captivity in Egypt. They're singing in response to God safely bringing them through the Red Sea. This was responsive, worshipful singing because all that God has done for them. Sing to him because he's done marvelous things. That, those words, marvelous things, it's actually a single word in the, group, in the Greek that means uh, wonder. It means uh, incomprehensible. What, what, what's in mind here is, is singing in response to the supernatural work of God that only he could have done. This can, this can only be described, it's, the only thing that makes sense of this is, is God has done this. We're obviously meant to think of the Exodus. Actually, his, his right hand and his holy arm working salvation, that's, that's the, one of the Bible's most favorite way of uh, describing what happened in the Exodus. Um, in Exodus 13, uh, which is this scene, that's, it immediately follows uh, God bringing the people out of Egypt, and just before he brings them to, through the Red Sea, um, in that scene, Moses is, is leading his people in this remembrance and celebration of what God has just done. And in verse 3, uh, it says, uh, Moses says this, Remember the day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out, of, out from this place. And then again in verses eight and nine, he says, you shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. It shall be to you a sign on your hand, on your, on your hand and a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be put in your mouth for with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. In Deuteronomy 26 verse eight, uh, again, Moses says, the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with great deeds of terror or with terrifying power, with signs and wonders. What's he referring to there? These, these, these signs and wonders, these, these, this terrifying power, these are the marvelous things that he has done for them. Right? The, the ten plagues, the, the splitting of the Red Sea, this was God at work doing marvelous supernatural things. This was his hand working salvation for his people. My favorite is Jeremiah 31. When God is speaking about the new covenant, he says, behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Isn't that amazing? How did they, how did they uh, receive uh, salvation, hundreds of years of captivity in Egypt? The Lord grabbed them by the hand and dragged them out. This is why the Exodus story is, is so important because it's a picture of how God saves. It's a picture, it's this foreshadowing of how God saves and works salvation for us in the New Testament. Ephesians 2 says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins 
But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of your works. Friends, when God saved you, he grabbed you by your dead hand and he brought you up out of the grave. With his right hand, with his holy arm, he worked salvation for us. What a reason to sing. This is is what the, the new song is in response to, the grace of God working salvation for us. Take take note of who the star of the show is in those first three verses. It's not Israel. It's solely the Lord. At least in our our English translations, uh, the word he or him is used nine times in those three verses. Sing to the Lord, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness. Look Look at all those verbs in there. He has done, he has worked, he has made known, he has revealed, he has remembered. What's, what's the reason for their singing? Well, nothing that they have done in and of themselves. It's solely because of what God has done for them. And the reason underneath all of this joy is because they, they haven't deserved any of this. They don't deserve this salvation. They've done nothing to deserve the, the marvelous things that God has done for them. Like read Israel's story. They're constantly running away from God. They're constantly breaking that covenant, constantly going after other gods, and yet he is faithful to his promises and his steadfast love, and so he acts to save them anyway. And his grace is shown ultimately, right, in the sending of his very own son, not to come and ignore our sins, but to pay the penalty of the, 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 penalty of the, of the sins themselves, himself, right? What a reason to sing, In the context of Psalm 98, this is Israel being called to remember, Israel being called to to sing in response to what God has done. But notice the last part of verse 3, all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God, right? So salvation is not limited to Israel, it's seen to the ends of the earth. And that's why there's a shift in verses 4 and 6. And we get this invitation, not just for Israel to sing, but for all of the earth to join in this celebration. Why? Because God is their rightful king as well. What God has done for Israel is for the sake of bringing light to the whole world. And so verse 4, it says, make a joyful noise to the Lord all of the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with a lyre, with a lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. What an invitation, not just for Israel to sing with joy, but all of the people of the earth. Like this, this is the joyful response of those Gentile nations who raged against God in Psalm 2, but have taken refuge in the King. Right, those nations that, that, that raged against him and, and God had sent his anointed king right to the world to shatter his enemies, but those who respond to his offer of mercy, th- those who, who, who repent and, and receive this offer of, of hope, 
and take refuge in the king, they now join Israel in this song of joy in response to God's grace and salvation. He becomes their king as well. They are welcomed into his kingdom as victors, as, as friends, not as enemies. And notice the, the response. It's lively and it's passionate singing. Right? This, this isn't a conservative, polite response. This is an outbreaking of praise. The, the choirs, the bands with their instruments celebrating their king. And actually, we've seen this play out a little bit before, kind of, in an earthly sense. Um, this past year was filled with royal news, right? Um, obviously, the death of Queen Elizabeth. Uh, we watched something happen that hasn't happened in 70 years, right? The passing of one monarch and the uh, coronation of the next. I'm sure everyone watched at least some of uh, the Queen's uh, memorial events and funeral. Uh, you saw hundreds of thousands of people lining the streets of London to, to celebrate her life. And then months later, we watch the coronation of her son, Charles, as he, he was crowned king. And if you watch that coronation event, you, you saw verses four and six kind of play out in an earthly sense, right? Again, hundreds of thousands of people lining the streets as the, the newly, uh, newly crowned king arrives, to, in, in a sense, to, to his palace to sit on his throne. And, and what was happening all around him that day? Trumpets were blasting. Choirs were singing. People were shouting and making a joyful noise, mostly. Um, and when the king and his, his royal family, they, they make their appearance on the balcony of Buckingham Palace, thousands of spectators rush to the gates of that palace and, and shout their praises, right? This joyful noise to the king, the celebration and the pomp. It was, it was quite impressive, wasn't it? Um, I found it impressive. And yet the response to the king in verse 8 is completely and utterly elevated from what we watched in London this year. And, and at risk of sounding like an anti-royalist, when you compare earthly kings with the king that God has set in place, King Jesus, they do not even begin to compare. And, and the reason is because of what God's anointed king has done in the first three verses of Psalm 98. Right, the marvelous things that he has done, the, the salvation that his hand has worked, his righteousness that he has revealed, the, the victory that he has accomplished on his people's behalves. Right, that, that's, that's a different uh, jubilant noise than what made the king's coronation so jubilant this year. It's, it's kind of what makes the, the, the constitutional monarchy successful, right? Is that the, the crown remains neutral. Right? The king or the queen doesn't exercise full power and authority. That's what Queen Elizabeth did so well for 70 years. She celebrated it in that sense. And so the shouts of long live the king, their, their jubilant praise of his coronation, they're really celebrations not of the victory of the king, but of what the figurehead represents. But Psalm 98, on the other hand, is a celebration of the victory of a mighty king who has brought salvation to his people by his mighty hand, right? King Charles received a joyful noise for happening to be born in the right family at the right time. I hope that's not disrespectful, okay? I, I watched it all, found it quite moving, quite enjoyed it. Um, but the joyful singing, the shouting, and the noises, they're really something. But the praise of King Jesus does not compare. But notice, 
uh, the, the, the progression of this invitation in, Psalm, in, in, verses, in those three verses, verses four, five, and six. Uh, it's an important progression. Verse four invites us to make a joyful noise to the Lord. Verse five, sing praises to the Lord. But verse six, there's a change. Invites us to make a joyful noise before the king, the Lord. And that word before, it's intimate. It literally means before their face. Right right in front of them. Making joyful noises in the presence of the king. Imagine all those people lining the streets of London, shouting their praises to the king as the procession passed by. Imagine being at the the, the gate of Buckingham Palace among those crowds of thousands and thousands of spectators when a guard makes his way up to the gate and he points to you. He he chooses you out of all of these thousands of people. He says, the king invites you in. And, And he opens the gate just enough for you to get in And you walk that gravelly road up to the the doors and through the palace doors, through the big, huge hallways, into the the, the king's royal ballroom, wherever he is, past his servants, past his family, and you're standing right before the king. Close enough to to smell him, right? To to see the, the lines on his face. If you're bold enough, close enough to, to reach out and touch him. That's a, that's a different experience than merely shouting at him as his carriage passes by on the street, right? Now, now imagine it isn't King Charles, but King Jesus. You've been invited freely into his presence. This is the king who spoke creation into being. It's the king who who brought you from death to life. You've been invited before him, and what an opportunity to say, thank you. Thank you for the salvation that you worked. I I don't deserve to be here, but I'm glad I am. What an opportunity to stand before him. Wouldn't you love that opportunity? This is the exact invitation to all of the earth. You have this opportunity. All you have to do is cry out to Jesus for salvation. Right? All, all you have to do is declare your need of him, place your trust in him alone, and you're invited in. What a gracious invitation. Why don't you take it? And Christian, every day of your life is this opportunity to stand before your king and say thank you, right? Your whole life, every moment of every day should be a responsive song to the grace that he's shown you. What a beautiful opportunity to sing, right? What does this look like in your life? Are you, are you aware of this invitation to your life, right? What does it look like to remember what God has done for you? Uh, to, to fill your, your heart up and your mind up with, wow, the marvelous things that he's done, and to now live your life as a worshipful response to his grace. What's that look like in your life? What an opportunity.
And lastly, in verses seven to nine, the invitation to rejoice extends not just to the peoples of the earth, but to creation itself. Verse seven says, let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. All right, a couple things are going on here. Um, th- this, is th- this is the part of the psalm that is looking straight ahead. Um, it's not really looking back at all. It's looking forward. It's, it's longing for something. It's, there's this anticipation for the earth to be able to roar, or the sea to be able to roar, for the, the rivers to be able to clap their hands, for the, for the hills to sing for joy. And the reason for this longing is because they're, they're currently not able to do those things fully. Paul writes something in Romans 8 that helps us make sense of what's going on here. Let me just read from verse 18. Paul's looking ahead here as well. He's longing, he's, he's, he's looking forward, and he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with the pains of childbirth until now. Not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Not hope that is, now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes what he sees? But if we hope for that which we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Right? What are we hoping for? What are we waiting for with patience? For King Jesus to come again, right? For, for his second advent when he will come and, and finally undo the wrong things in this world once and for all. When he will finally rid the earth of sin once and for all. We long for that. And until he does, we wait. We wait with hope. We wait with patience and Paul says this has not only affected us humans, but the earth itself. He, he kind of, he does what, what Psalm 98 does, and he personifies creation. He said, creation waits eagerly, longing for Christ to come again. The earth is longing to be set free from its bondage to corruption. The whole of creation is groaning in the pains of childbirth. Listen, if you've ever been with a woman during those final stages of, of, of pregnancy, you'll know what this text is saying. Right, that those final moments are really exciting, but you can't wait for it to be over. Right, it's 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 scary, it's uncomfortable, uh, it's painful, and you just want it to end for two reasons: yes, because something incredible is about to happen, but also because you want it to stop. 
And that's what the earth creation itself is experiencing. And Paul says the reason behind all of this groaning is what? Because Adam sinned. And, and, and his, when he sinned, not only were his descendants infected with that sin, but also his environment. And creation is longing to be set free from their bondage to decay. The earth is longing for King Jesus to come and undo the wrong things, right? Not just in the hearts of men, but in the earth itself. What longing we hear in that third verse of Isaac Watts' song. No more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow. Where? Far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. Don't you long for the king to come and renew creation itself? It's actually a really exciting thought. I don't know if you've ever thought this before, but and planet Earth is class, isn't it? It's beautiful. We were, me and the kids were watching a creation or a, a nature show the other day. It's incredible. We've seen like a fraction of it. It's the most beautiful place in the world. And yet, the, this text is saying, you haven't seen anything yet. You haven't seen anything yet. That when Jesus comes again and he frees the earth from its bondage to decay, frees it from the curse, there will be a heavenly beauty in the forests and in the fields and in the rivers and the oceans that we have never yet seen. Don't you long for that? Don't you long to live in that place, right? That that place that we were originally created to live in the presence of our king on a renewed earth before the Lord, verse 9 says. Before the Lord, verse 9 says, for he comes to judge the earth and he will judge the world with righteousness and equity. Right, verse 9 is the reason that the earth will rejoice because the king, he comes to judge the world. And just like in Psalm 2, the arrival of that king can either be terrible news or the most glorious news. Why? Because he judges with righteousness. Right? He comes to, to, to undo the wrongs in the world. And that means ridding the world of sin, which means casting out sinners. But the offer of the good news that there is hope for sinners, right? There is an offer of mercy. There's only one way to escape the righteous wrath of the king. And that's through the king's own death. Right? Through the cross of Jesus, we actually have a way to be made righteous. We actually have a way for our sin to be defeated and removed. We have a way to be justified. We have a way to eternal life before the king on a renewed earth. Friends, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. He comes to judge the earth. I don't know if you've ever been in a courtroom, but I'm sure you've watched TV and you've seen movies. A courtroom is not usually the most joyful of places, right? Like when a judge comes in the room, people stand and they take them seriously it's a somber environment. It's especially not joyful for the guilty party, for those being sentenced. But there is joy, there is relief to be found in a courtroom, and that's when the innocent are vindicated, right? 
when the innocent are set free, when wrongs are made right. That's what we long for. That's, that's where the joy, that's where the relief is. But, but here's the glory of the gospel, is that no one in this room is innocent. Each and every one of us are, by nature, guilty in our sins and, and actually wholly deserving of the judge, the, the, the punishment that the judge meets out. And yet... In the gospel, we are declared not guilty because Jesus has paid the penalty of our sins. Right? The judge himself has paid the price on our behalf. He declares us to be righteous. He declares us to be vindicated. He declares us to be victorious. He has worked salvation for us out of his extravagant love. And by faith, we are united to him Right? We are made one with him and we receive freely the riches of his kingdom. By Christ's blood, we have brought, been brought near to the king. Through his sacrifice, he has turned us from being enemies into being family, brought into the household of God. We've been given eternal life instead of eternal separation. The only appropriate response to that glorious news is to make a joyful noise before the Lord, isn't it? We must sing in response to what he's done for us. Would you stand with me and we'll pray. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes, take a breath. Advent is about longing. It's about waiting. I'm just going to ask you to wait for a minute. Once you reflect on, on this news of this king who will come and judge the world in righteousness and with equity, is that good news for you or terrible news? If it's terrible news, you don't have to feel terrible. You can have hope because this king offers you refuge in him. Would you consider that offer? Would you consider that invitation again? It says, come, come to me, I'll give you rest. Come to me, and I'll set you free. If you're a follower of Jesus, does that news light up in your heart? Does that news make you want to sing? That this king has grabbed you by the hand and brought you out of the grave and given you an inheritance that is glorious and eternal. What a reason to sing. And Father, we just thank you. We thank you, Lord, that you meet us 
when we are enemies of you, when we are raging against you, when we are setting ourselves against you, you come and you meet us. And you offer us hope. You live this life that we could never dream of living and you die the death that we surely deserve to die. And you bid us to, to come to you now, Jesus. Put our faith in you and receive eternal life. Uh, we just thank you, Lord. We want to live lives in response to that glorious news every single day. We thank you that you invite us into the presence of the King, into your very presence to, to sing joyfully. Uh, fill us with that good news this morning, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.